Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads Podcast with Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Using an interview format, Pastor Bob will introduce you to men and women whose ministries are impacting this world with the gospel and will also provide commentary and insight on end-time prophetic events we now see happening in the news. Now here is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Hello everyone everywhere, this is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to part two of a fascinating interview with Michelle Phoenix, who's telling us about the third culture kids of missionary families, a book that she's written, and that describes a fictional story, but yet it is based upon a lot of times what happens in these families. It is a fascinating interview. Uh, if you missed part one, I highly recommend you go back and, and listen to it. And now we're going to join part two, already in progress, with Michelle Phoenix. Publishers Weekly also gave you a great review. They said, quote, in this fine novel, Phoenix realistically captures the deep struggles enveloping a missionary family. That's a strong word, enveloping. Does it Mm-hmm. envelope every missionary family? It doesn't. And I am thrilled to report that a majority of the families that I know and the majority of the MKs that I've worked with really have done well. The, the children, if they are raised in a home where they are valued and where they are prioritized and where there is healthy and honest communication, they absolutely thrive. The the balance to that is that even those MKs I know, and there are a minority who truly struggle, as Ryan in this book does, for a multitude of reasons, but even those MKs I know who have truly suffered in their growing up years, as to some degree I did growing up as an MK, even they, 90% of all MKs, would not give it up for anything. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of this dichotomy in their lives, particularly of those who have struggled, of loving growing up cross-culturally, loving the experiences they've had, and at the same time carrying within them, usually unspoken, the burden of the hard stuff. So my my goal in my ministry and in writing this book was to start to talk about the hard stuff, because I'm still meeting adult MKs who are in their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, and I can tell you a story about one such gentleman who, when they finally start talking about their MK experiences, there is still that childhood grief and those childhood scars that haven't been addressed yet. So let's talk, really, is the basis for everything I do. Yeah. Now, concerning those missionary kids, the ones that are scarred, if we'll use that word, right? are they right. normally involved in the education system or the culture in which they live, or are they... Uh, surrounded by English-speaking tutors, etc.? I don't think that there's that much of a correlation as far as the context in which they grow up, as far as whether they're involved in the culture completely Mm. or more kind of in a microcosm of of the missionary world. I think the greatest factors have to do with um, just random life events that would happen whether they were overseas or in the States. There there are kids who, like myself, were abused on the mission field. Mm. Uh, But then there's also family dynamics, and that's why really this book, A Stillness and Storm, is about 
the inner workings of a family because for some of these MKs, their parents are so truly committed to God and committed to the work that they've been called to do that sometimes they lose track of the children that are living under their own roof. Mm-hmm. And the problem with what I mentioned before with the, the tension that these children are under with the expectations that are put on them by their home churches and by the world looking in, the tension is that they feel like maybe they shouldn't be prioritized. Maybe what their parents is doing is more important than what they're experiencing, whether it be at home or outside the home. And if they're anything like me, they aren't telling their parents about it. They aren't telling anybody else about it because there's a shame that they would feel weak or that they would feel wounded because... You know, they're MKs. They're supposed to be strong. They're supposed to be spiritual supermen and women um, because that's kind of what they think the world expects of them. Do you think they are under more pressure than what we commonly refer to as PKs, pastor kids? I think it's a similar pressure, but there are extra factors that are added to it. PKs absolutely have that same expectation of how they turn out. Um, but with missionary kids, they're also living cross-culturally, so they have never, for most of the, the greatest number of them, never had a sense of full belonging anywhere, so they don't have that foundational piece. There's also um, the expectation that they should want to be involved in missions. A lot of times, I think the missionary endeavor is more all-family than the pastoral endeavor, so they feel like they're supposed to be wholeheartedly participating in the ministry, which is a hard thing for some of them to do when they feel that the ministry is depriving them of some pretty vital things in life. Yeah, well, not just that, but being in ministry is actually a calling, and they're not called. They weren't the ones called. They were just and, born. And you'll, and you'll, yes, and you will find some debate on that in various missionary circles. Some people say that God would not call the parents without calling the children. So when that's the case, as it was in this book, the father, Sam, feels very strongly and clearly that God has called him to Nepal. His wife hesitates, and his son does not want to go. And I think the mistake that we see happening over and over again in some missionary families is that they feel that once the call is clearly articulated to one family member, that then it is time to pack up and go, raise your support, pack up and go. And I truly believe that if God is going to call the whole family, we need to give the rest of the family the time, the space, um, the spiritual reasoning to get to the point where they agree to what it is that the one family member has been sensing. And I think that's where I see the, the most grievous harm that is done to MKs is when they are dragged kicking and screaming, when they've made it clear to mom and dad um, and there are so many ways of mitigating that. There are so many ways of even giving us a, a time limit to it. Let's go for a year or two years, and then let's talk about this again. Or yeah. let's give you the option of making some of the choices. So these are three apartments we can live in. Which apartment do you want to live in? You know, mm-hmm. there are so many ways of including the other family members in the process. And I think the problem with calling is that it is often so intense that the person who is called doesn't really want to give God the time to work on the rest of the people who will be involved in the decision. Yeah, because the person called, they want to get right to work. You know, I mean, Absolutely. we'll, we'll and, jump and in, reason. you know, give me a parachute. We don't even got to wait the plane, you know, for the plane <laughs> to land. You know? 
That's exactly, which is exactly what this character does. And he doesn't even want the parachute of a sending agency or, or a supporting <laughs> church. He just wants to get there. And he sees all of these other hoops to jump through as kind of, you know, impediments to what he wants to do. So right. the result of that is that there's no oversight when they, once they do yeah. get to Kathmandu and this man is starting to unravel. Um, so, I, and there's one line in the book where he says, I don't want to take the, the path the path most traveled. I want to take the path less traveled. And his wife goes, there's probably a really good reason why that other path is more traveled than the one you want to take. Mm. But again, it's that, it's that headlong, just yep. throwing yourself into the calling you've received that can, that can be a little bit um, dangerous at times. Yeah. Well, we'll just trust God. Everything will work out. Yeah. But, yeah. There are actually missions that used to say, um, a mission that actually used to require that all their missionaries go to uh, language training and send their kids as, as young as first grade to boarding school. And that mission would say, you do God's work and let God take care of your kids. Mm. So that has been bandied about a little bit too much with some pretty disastrous consequences in some instances. Well, yeah, I can imagine. Now, you've written other books as well. Tell us about some of them, how they relate to this book. Well, um, In Broken Places, which I mentioned earlier, happens in Germany. So I like to write what I call destination novels. It's, mm -hmm. it's always American protagonists, but in other parts of the world. So that one follows um, the story of a woman who inherits a three-year-old little girl. She's a single woman who's never had a child before and has to delve into her own past in order to untangle what's going on in her present. So she moves mm -hmm. to Germany for a fresh start, works at a school for missionaries, kids, go figure. Um, and then there's a lot of flashbacks to growing up in, in her case, in an abusive home um, in the United States and a lot of interactions between her and her brother growing up as they're trying to figure out what, who God is in the middle of all of this, this hard stuff that they're facing. And then my second book, I was actually raised in France. My parents taught at the European Bible Institute, which is a Greater Europe Mission Bible School, which has now closed its doors. But that school was housed in a 17th century, 18th century castle. So I literally grew up in a castle. Um, and I wanted to write a book. <laughs> That's right. I thought I was growing up. It was very disappointing <laughs> when I discovered that I wasn't. But I wanted to feature that that building because it was such a huge part of my identity growing up. And as I did research into his history, I discovered a part of World War II Nazi history that nobody in all of my growing up years in this town had ever mentioned before. Mm. So it became a World War II mystery that's anchored in the present as an American architect is hired to um, restore this old building. And it has to do with um, one of the Nazi programs was Lebensborn, or Spring of Life, in which they would bring pregnant women to secluded places, have them have their babies, and then farm these babies out to high-ranking Nazi families. And that oh. happened in this village where I went to school when I was growing up. Oh, so that's the second book. And then the one that's coming out in September, which is called The Space Between Words, starts with the terrorist attack in Paris and an American woman who barely escapes the attack in the concert hall that happened a little over a year ago now. And she takes off for southern France with her friend afterwards. He kind of forces her arm or twists her arm into going with him, and she's not quite sure why, but he's a flea market aficionado. And in one of their first stops at a flea market, she finds an antique sewing box, which has pages of a diary that was written by a woman who lived in the 18th century and was a Huguenot 
Protestant Christian who was being persecuted in those days. So as she follows and tries to find out more about this woman and her journal, they go off on this uh, trek that takes them from France to England and looking for more clues about what happened to this Huguenot family during a time of persecution. And she finds out a lot about who God is and how to live in the present as she investigates the past. Amen. Glory to God. I have to ask you, how do you yes. come up with these plots? <laughs> that is such um, a difficult question to answer. And, and every author will tell you something different. I mentioned I don't do the whole plotting in advance. I don't sit down at my computer and have all, you know, 25 chapters outlined. Mm-hmm. Usually it just hits me upside the head. Um, wow. In Broken Places, for instance, I was vacuuming and I, in my apartment in Germany, and I saw the face of this little three-year-old pop into my mind, and I immediately dropped the, back, the vacuum and went to my bed, which is where I do the best writing, propped up in bed and started writing the story, and it came out within, within three weeks. For this one, it was a longer process because, again, it kind of encapsulates what, the, what is the core of my life these days. Mm-hmm. So... I I started writing as soon as Lauren, the main character, the wife, um, appeared in my mind, and then the other characters kind of fleshed themselves out as her story progressed. I'm always surprised by certain elements of the story, names that automatically change themselves. I started out calling Ryan Caleb, and as I was probably on page 50 or 60 of the book, my fingers started typing Ryan instead of Caleb, so I went, okay. I guess Ryan wants to be called Ryan, which sounds like channeling, and it really isn't. It's just a different creative process for me. Amen. Well, give us another little subplot of of Stillness and Storm. What what else can you tell us about your book? Well, and this is where I think one of the additional controversial aspects come into it, and that is that while Lauren, the wife and mother, is stranded in Kathmandu, which is a very foreign, very different culture to what she grew up with in the States. While her husband is out being fulfilled and galvanized by what he's doing, and her son is slowly locking himself into this this shell and not speaking much and not showing much emotion, she um, gets talked into logging onto Facebook and opening an account. And as a result of that, she reconnects with a friend from her youth, a young man that she had dated when they were in high school. And, of course, every red flag in every reader's mind goes up at at that moment. And I hesitated to include this feature of the book, and yet it speaks so strongly of how desperate Lauren was for to be known, for human connection, to be recognized as more than just a missionary, that the rest of her life mattered. And this person who reentered her life in digital form online is somebody who knew her when, before her world got reduced, before her marriage got a little bit more sour. And so she really has to battle um, this reconnection with something that is feeding her in ways that she hasn't been fed in a very long time. And when she finds out that he's ill on top of it, that adds, and severely ill, seriously ill, that adds another layer of um, almost obligation to this online relationship that is in such contrast to what she's experiencing every day at home. Wow. Uh, that's, that's deep. I have to admit, that is deep. <laughs> it's deep and it's complicated, indeed. <laughs> Amen. Now, what are your plans for the immediate future? What are you, gonna, what are you doing? 
Well, I am, I'm still engaged in, in my, my ministry. So my speaking engagements at conferences and MK schools, missionary schools have taken me all over the world. I mean, literally to, to Nepal, to Kathmandu, where this story is based. And that was a huge part of the inspiration was mm. experiencing that culture. And I mean, France, Germany, um, I'm, I'm hoping to get to South, South America at some point. I've had invitations to Africa and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's a blessing for me to be able to broaden my sphere of influence in this way. But my recent history is that I've actually in December was diagnosed with two forms of, of breast cancer. Oh, um, so that has, and I had breast cancer also in 2008. So this was a, a new version of the old cancers that came back and mm. it has somewhat rearranged my schedule. I was supposed to be yeah. in Chiang Mai at the end of last month and had to cancel that, had to have uh, a pretty huge surgery, which I'm learning to say out loud, bilateral mastectomy. So mm. I am in the middle of recovery at this point, and thankfully, thank you, Jesus, and I don't know why I got this gift and others don't get it, but I don't have to do chemotherapy, and I don't have to do radiation, Um, so I'm very grateful for that, but right now, my ministry is mostly online and Mm -hmm. in person as much as I can here in this area, and my website, michellephoenix.com, it's Michelle with only one L, is really the hub of everything I do, and there are... There's a huge long list of all the articles I've written about the various aspects of MK life that need to be unpacked a little bit. So if people want to go there and learn a little bit more about me and about my novels, but especially about this ministry, I've put together videos there, interviews with real adult MKs who tell their stories, and these articles about, you know, MKs and relationships, which they do completely different differently from mm. monocultural peers. And MKs and faith, MKs and abuse, MKs and significance, MKs and need, which some of them decide they don't want to need anybody anymore because they've lost so many people in the comings and goings on the mission field. So it's a whole collection of what I think is important for MKs and their parents especially to read because parents can't fully understand what it is to be an MK. And then I'm working as well on compiling 10 of those articles into an ebook that will be more Amen. easily accessible to people who are on the field and in limited access countries. Amen. Amen. So you're still staying busy. I, Amen. yes. I believe <laughs> that if you survive three forms of cancer as I have, yeah. it is my, not my duty, but my joy to keep investing in life and in people as much as I can. Yeah, amen. We'll be praying for your health. I mean, that is... Thank I mean, you. Thank God you don't have to go through the chemo and all of that. Thank you, yes. Jesus. I'm so amen. grateful, yes. And and to be honest, we didn't know that I had cancer when I opted to have this surgery. It was really preventative surgery, so mm-hmm. I see... God's fingerprints all over this. If I hadn't had the courage to say, okay, because of my history, because of the false alarms, let's do this surgery, it would have been two or three years before these tumors were found. And by then it would be a whole different story. So so thank you, Jesus, all around for this whole experience since December. Amen. Well, have you got time for a couple of quick questions? Um, Sure. I got nowhere to go. (laughs) Well, our Everything Church-Related podcast... um, we like to ask a couple of questions as we get ready to close it out. And we save your answers to these questions and mm-hmm. we'll compile them with the answers of other uh, people that we interview. And we'll do special segments where we'll have like a question of the day. And then we just provide mm-hmm. the different answers from different people that we've interviewed. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Sure. And these are doozies. I've got to say, I've got the list in front of me, and these are doozies. So some of them are above (laughs) my pay grade. Theologically speaking, I'm not sure I can answer them all, but go ahead, hit me. I'm going to ask a couple that are related to missionary work, okay? Okay. Now, in your opinion, what is the number one demonic attack that is coming against missionary families in third world cultures? And I would broaden this beyond third world cultures okay. to just the missionary family globally. And I believe it is in relationships that they're being attacked. I really do. I believe that the devil knows that when a missionary couple is struggling, their work mm-hmm. suffers from it. That when their children are suffering, their witness suffers from it. Mm-hmm. I have seen it over and over again. Um, direct attacks on, on relationships on the mission field. Not just in the core family either. I mean, there is conflict when teams of people who don't know each other are suddenly supposed to work together day in and day out. There's some conflict that can arise there too. Mm-hmm. So I do see I do see the strongest evidence of spiritual warfare in attacks on relationships. Wow. Okay. How can missionary families really prepare for what they are about to face, especially if they're going to be gone for extended periods of time? Yeah. They need to educate themselves. They need to speak with other families who have gone at the same stage of life as they're going, especially when their kids are at the same stage of life as they're going. I'd like to give you a bit of a, of a visual um, illustration here that you can okay. either use or not use. But one of the things that I do when I'm speaking to missionary parents to try and explain to them how their cross-cultural experience is so different from their children is this. And I do it when I go to missionary schools overseas, too, usually when I'm in the younger grades with with younger MKs. And I'll have two jars, one jar with red beads and one jar with blue beads. And I find the toughest little kid in the class, and I have him combine the jars and just shake it as hard as he can. And when he's finished shaking those beads together, we all look at it as as a little group, and we can say, yeah, I can still see the red beads and the blue beads. And, um, And so I can distinguish what belongs where. With MKs, it's more like two balls of Play-Doh. So I give the same child two balls of one red Play-Doh and one blue Play-Doh, and I say, okay, now mush those together, and he'll just mash them together. And when he's finished doing that, what he ends up with is kind of a purple ball of Play-Doh, and that is how MKs, that is how children experience cross-cultural life. So though their parents can figure out, you know, this is my American side or this is my Canadian side and that's my Romanian side, for the kids it is this wonderfully complex but very confusing mass of purple Play-Doh. And the parents need to be aware of that so that they can start, number one, to create the kind of communication that allows the clarification as the kids are growing up, Um, and then so that they can really be empathetic with their children when they experience the kind of confusion or challenge that the parents don't, on a gut level, understand. They need to know that the experience is different for those who are young and growing up between worlds. Well, that's 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 really a great visual example. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does your ministry and the Global Outreach Mission help families, especially those that are already deployed? How do, how does that go, how do you go about doing that? You know, missions in general are are starting to get an understanding of how important missionary care is. And missionary care or member care is is what we call it, has a whole lot of different outworkings depending on what organization you're with. I think 
I think it all starts with exactly what I'm doing in a stillness and storm. It all starts mm-hmm. with pointing out what the pitfalls might be, not that all missionary families fall into them, not that even a majority of them do, but unless we're aware of what the dangers could be on the field, whether it be relationally or spiritually or um, in a community sense, unless we're aware of what those pitfalls can be, we don't see them when they start to reveal themselves. So we can't sidestep them when they're right in front of us. And and I think my mission is doing great with this. They had me come in actually for all of their pre-field conferences to speak yeah. with the new missionaries who are parents who are going out. I'm constantly looking for other missions who will have me in. I, I work with Teach Beyond. They have me every year for their pre-field and with Team. I do one of their conferences right here in Wheaton, which is where I live. But I have travel funds, and I will travel anywhere I can in the world to assist all these missions who are trying to improve on what they offer their missionaries through member care. We're getting there. We're getting better. But the really hard conversations, like the one in this book, like the temptation of adultery, like um, marriages where communication falls apart, like children who distance themselves to the point where they no longer feel like a part of the family, these really tough topics, we need to be able to explore them together to prevent the attrition we've seen in previous years yeah amen amen okay last question now if you woke up tomorrow morning and realized we'll say your entire adult life was a dream but you were able to keep all of the experiences and memories of everything that had happened (laughs) what would you do and would you go about doing it different and why well it has been quite the dream i'll start by telling you that um I think I think three things come to mind initially. The first is that, and it's what I've been saying to you, the first is that I would learn to speak of the hard stuff sooner mm-hmm. because for a lot of my adult life, I was still carrying around the really heavy, burdensome, really crippling baggage of stuff that had happened to me in my childhood, on the mission field, inside, outside the house, um, that nobody had ever spoken of so that I had never had the opportunity to speak of it. So I think I would I would try to find a way of speaking of that sooner in life. And then I think I would be conscious of wellness and happiness in a much more intentional way. I think that people like me who have gone through some pretty dark waters health-wise wish we could go back to being 25 and carefree and, you know, the occasional strained finger was as bad as it got. And I think it would be good to be able to go back and really acknowledge I am in a good physical place. I'm enjoying life. I can climb that mountain without getting breathless. Um, I'm happy, all of that. And then thirdly, I think that I would try to fear change or transition a whole lot less. Mm. Leaving BFA, leaving my lifetime overseas and 20 years doing a work I love teaching MKs was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I fought God on it when it became clear to me that this was his next step for me. Um, and I really put myself through the ringer for the full year that it took for me to make the final decision. And I wish that I hadn't done that because looking back now, five years later, I can see how perfect the direction was and how perfect for me alone, let alone the ministry that I've been able to have, but how wonderful it was for me to make that change and go through that really hard transition. So I think I would like to teach my younger self not to kick and scream quite so much, but to trust the person who is saying, now is the time, and I've got good things for you. Just trust me. Amen. Now, your book of Stillness and Storm is published by Thomas Nelson. Congratulations on that. 
They're the best. I love them. Uh, they're, they're a great Christian publishing house. I mean, now, they is are. your book available in bookstores as well as on Amazon and all that? It's certainly available everywhere online that you can buy books. And many, many Christian bookstores and even some Barnes & Noble are carrying it. If Amen. your bookstore doesn't have it and if you'd rather pick it up in a, in a brick-and-mortar store, all you have to do is talk to somebody there and say you'd like to buy that book, and they'll order it in for you. So it's really not complicated to get it. It has also been re- released on audiobook, on CD and MP3, and it just got released in a beautiful new artwork version of it um, in large print. So anything that you want, you can get this book in. Hey, man. Well, Michelle, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Uh, can I ask you to give us your contact information if someone wants to ask you to come speak at an event or a church or how to get in touch with the organization? You know, how, how can they do, go Absolutely. about doing that? Absolutely. Thank you for offering me this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, they can find me online. So it's michellephoenix.com. Again, it's Michelle, E-L-E, not two L's. Phoenix, like the city, .com. Um, I have a contact link on every page there. They can read more about what I do and about the topics that I cover. But I am always, they need to know this, I am always eager to open new conversations and prepare new topics to present. So if there's a topic that isn't listed on my site, but they feel this is a need for their organization or their family, let me know, and I will develop what I need to develop to meet that need. Amen. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. And I want to thank you, Michelle, for taking your time to be with us today. Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Not a problem. I enjoyed it. I know our listeners are as well. Praise God. And we'll be praying for your health. Amen. Uh, Thank you. Folks, I highly encourage you to go to Amazon.com and purchase a copy of Michelle's new book of Stillness and Storm for yourself. And even get a couple additional copies or two to provide to missionary families you or your church support. This should be required reading. Amen. It it should be required reading for them. Amen. Michelle, thank you again. And for Michelle Phoenix and myself, remember to be blessed in all that you do.